Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery in-service review. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examinations. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with the experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Today, our topic will be transgender surgery. We have Dr. Rizak, who is a microsurgeon here at Duke University Hospital specializing in breast reconstruction and transgender surgery. Welcome. Thank you. So today we'll talk about gender affirmation, affirmation surgery. Gender affirmation surgery continues to grow in popularity and demand as over 1.4 million people in the U.S. currently identify as transgender. This represents a huge, unique at-risk medical population with, with barriers to healthcare and higher incidence of anxiety and depression. Gender dysphoria is defined by the DSM-5 as a person whose gender at birth is incongruent with gender identity. We as plastic surgeons play an essential role in the comprehensive approach to patients diagnosed with gender dysphoria as gender affirmation surgery is often the last step in the treatment of this process. So our goal today is going to provide an overview regarding pre-op assessment and surgical treatment options available for these patients. So first we'll start with preoperative assessment. Um, when we think about preoperative evaluation of patients with gender dysphoria, um, it obviously requires an interdisciplinary team and an individualized approach for each patient regarding expectations and personal goals. There are some developed recommendations by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, um, and treatment guidelines for transgender patients. So these guidelines state that all patients that present for surgery must have the capacity to make a fully informed consent. If you remember on last year's in-service exam, this was one of our questions. So every patient that presents must have the capacity to consent. The age of consent for gender affirmation surgeries is 18 years or older in the United States. However, if a patient underage desires female to male mastectomy, they can undergo surgery if they have a consenting guardian, have lived in the congruent gender identity for the last for at least one year, and have completed a year of continuous testosterone therapy. Um, all patients that present for surgery must also have a referral from a mental health professional, and that needs to document persistent gender dysphoria, and then they have to have one require one referral for chest reconstruction and two separate referrals for genital reconstruction. Patients seeking surgery should have well-controlled comorbidities as any surgical patients, and they should be up to date with any recommended gender-related health and routine cancer screenings. Uh, hormone therapy is not required for gen chest gender affirmation surgery. However, for patients undergoing male to female chest reconstruction, 12 months of hormone therapy is recommended to allow for breast tissue growth and for better aesthetic outcomes. Hormone therapy is required for 12 continuous months prior to any genital reconstruction surgery. And in addition, patients must have lived 12 months continuously in the gender role congruent with their respective identity. Dr. Rizak, I know you see a lot of these patients that present with gender dysphoria seeking, um, seeking transgender operations. Can you talk to us a little bit about these guidelines and, um, and the patients that you see in your practice and what you kind of look for when you evaluate these patients? Absolutely. I think the most important thing is to make sure that you treat all patients the same, including our transgender patients. And part of that is um, listening to what they feel is important. So not all patients want the traditional 
mastectomy or breast augmentation, there can be a very different uh, spectrum of what they're looking for. So when you introduce yourself, make sure that you use your pronouns. So I'm Dr. Rizak, she, her, hers. You ask the patient their preferred name, their preferred pronoun as part of their introduction. Uh, then you review their medical history just like any other patient and particularly focusing on any other surgeries they have had done to do part of the transitioning process, as well as any other medicines they're taking, such as the hormone replacement. Um, For the chest surgery, so the mastectomy, uh, we don't necessarily require them to be on hormones, uh, So, but if they are, that's great. Uh, But for transitioning from a male to female, the estrogen really does help support uh, and grow those breast buds, uh, and that really does make a difference for those surgeries. and I think that plays a lot in kind of how we evaluate these patients. Thank you. So kind of going back over these WPATH requirements as these will likely be tested on, if you are seeking a top surgery, so chest or breast surgery, you need one referral, uh, a documented referral of gender dysphoria from a mental health provider. You must have the capacity of informed consent, which is with every patient that presents. The age of consent is greater than 18, and we talked about uh, the patients that may uh, present younger than 18, having a consent from a parent or living um, in their stated gender for over a year. Um, Hormone therapy is not required for chest and breast surgery, although Dr. Rizek touched touched base on why that might be helpful for these patients. And then living in congruence with gender identity is not required for chest and breast procedures. For bottom surgery, for genital reconstruction um, or genital affirmation surgery, Patients need two referrals from a mental health provider documenting gender dysphoria. They obviously need to have informed consent capacity. They have to be over 18. They must be on 12 months of continuous hormone therapy, and they must be living in in their congruent gender identity for 12 continuous months as well. And then the last section of gender reaffirming surgery is facial or other procedures. You don't need a uh, documented referral from a mental health provider for these facial surgeries. You do have to be able to consent as with any surgical procedure. You have to be over 18 or have a guardian consent. You do not have to be on hormone therapy and you do not have to live in uh, your congruent, live in congruence with your gender identity for a certain amount of time. Um, Rachel, just to point out though that the age of, ma- uh, the age of majority um, is basically a standardized age. So when we say 18, basically a lot of the reasons we do that is because the insurances won't pay for it unless they're over 18. Some insurances will with the supporting letters and also the guardian's consent. And if you look at our societies right now, the WPATH basically states that um, if the majority of the surgeons in feel that it's safe, uh, and beneficial to operate on younger, they are. And so now it's around 16 for the, mm-hmm. the chest surgeries. And so that age of majority basically is basically saying that who we're going to be operating on and who's going to benefit from them and safety, uh, and now it's lower. So it's about 16, but that's also insurance may not pay for it. Thank you. Um, our next topic will be talking about specific procedures for patients seeking gender-affirming surgery. The first one that we'll talk about is male-to-female surgery, and that will include um, both chest and genital procedures. So these patients, male-to-female, present represent the largest proportion of the transgender population, and implant-based breast reconstruction is the most common male-to-female chest surgery. Hormone therapy, like we talked about, is not required for surgery, although estrogen hormone therapy is recommended prior to surgery to allow for breast tissue growth and improve cosmetic surgical results. And Dr. Rizak touched a little bit on that. 
Um, fat grafting can also be util utilized as an alternative for a more natural appearing breast. Um, and breast augmentation in the male to female population is similar to uh, approach in the cis patients. Agreed. So um, there are different techniques that we can use uh, for the, the male to female. You know, predominantly we do the implants. But we also do fat grafting with augmentation. Um, just so you know, cis patients is, is somebody who prefers to be in that assigned gender. So um, a cis female, cis, cis male, just for terminology's sake. Um, fat grafting is not as popular uh, as implants, partly due to basically the differences in male and female chest dimensions. So you're taking a female chest, um, you're trying to identify and have that which is a more narrow base width, um, and the nipples are more in a standard location. So there's a lot more that we need to do to kind of change that, just not in augmentation, but overall appearance. Rosie, can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between the male chest and the female chest when we're talking about male to female uh, chest surgeries? Mm -hmm. So like Dr. Rizak mentioned, there are some differences between the chest and so in the male chest, it's slightly wider than the female chest. And so that presents a little problem that could result in widened cleavage or a laterally displaced nipple areolar complex. Um, so the preference of periareolar, axillary, and primary approach and prepectoral versus subpectoral placement of the implants are surgeon and patient dependent. Dr. Rizek, what do you find is most beneficial for your patient population? I find that using a uh, periareolar approach is very difficult because most male nipple areolar complexes are small. They're less about two to three uh, centimeters. Uh, so a, a uh, inframammary approach is, very, is a good approach as well as an axillary approach. Um, and depending on whether you're going to be sub-pec or pre-pec, I find that I can get a better result with a pre-pec reconstruction because I can go a little wider. But you also have to take into account our widest implants are not that wide. So so the largest implants are only like 15, 16 centimeters, and some chests on male chests can go pretty wide. So that's the difficult part is we're kind of limited on what implants we have. Okay, thank are you. Are they starting to make certain implants for these types of procedures? Correct. They are just starting to come out with newer different uh, ranges of implants, partly because of the transgender population, uh, but also if you have like a short uh uh, female with a wide chest width, uh, you know, the uh, certain implant companies will make a shorter and a wider implant, um, but they're starting to do that with smooth implants now instead of textured. Nice. When we talk about complications of breast augmentation, they're going to be similar to the general population um, that we learn about, and those include capsular contracture, hematoma, and prosthesis rupture. Um, Post-gender affirmation patients, they should undergo breast mammography screening every two years starting at the age of 50 or every five to 10 years after femi feminizing hormone, similar to the female population. Uh, the goals of male to female genital reconstruction are sen sexual sensation, a functional vagina, and acceptable cosmesis. So we're talking about bottom surgery now. Um, is that the correct way to say that? Um, t technically, top and bottom is more of like the slang terms. Yes, okay. you can say that. Um, but, you know, if you're going to say uh, chest and genital reconstruction is kind of the preferred way for if you're talking with colleagues and patients mm -hmm. and things like that. But patients may not know that term. They just may, may know top and bottom. Okay. Um, so obviously, like you talked about, the goals are sexual sensation, functional vagina, and acceptable cosmesis. Penile inversion vaginoplasty is the gold standard for genital reconstruction in the male to female population. Inversion vaginoplasty includes performing scrotal excision, high-end ligation orchiectomy, dissection of the penis, creation of a neovagina in the prerectal space, and creating a neoclitoris utilizing the glans penis and a neourethra anastomosis. So the most common long-term complication of these procedures is urologic dysfunction that's commonly tested. And 
that occurs in about 10 to 40 percent of patients. They might experience meatal stenosis or splayed urinary strain, and it's recommended that these patients continue the same prostate screening as cisgender men. Agreed. Uh, another problem with this, so if you have a patient who's transitioning from male to female uh, and they suppress the testosterone, so those estrogen, they're getting estrogen hormones, um, some of the problems include uh, actually um, the uh, hypogonadism, right? So the smaller uh, uh, penis and the smaller scrotal sacs can lead to problems when you're trying to do that penile inversion vaginoplasty. And so that's where other techniques have been come into play where they start to use uh, colon transposition and taking the colon segment uh, or the uh, ileum to make the uh, vaginal pouch or extended with skin grafts. And so those are some of the things that they're seeing with that type of uh, hormone replacement. So in terms of the 12-month rule of getting hormones, you actually want to err on the side of just about 12 months well, as opposed to more? Correct. Well, they're seeing it with a more long-term use. So if you're out 5, 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're trying to transition. And so that's some of the downsides of doing that later in life right. uh, rather than early on. So it is a little beneficial if they get done early on in life if you're just starting the hormones more than later, say 5 to 10 years. As opposed to the breast surgery, correct. which makes it which better. Makes it better. Mm-hmm. Are there other options for male to female genital surgery besides an inversion vaginoplasty or? Not much. Just uh, besides that and also the, um, uh, you're looking at just the, the bowel segments are the only other options. But the downsides for the bowel is that, you know, you're secre- you have a lot of secretions. They can mm-hmm. have strictures too as well. Um, the, you know, the uh, the urethral uh, dysfunction is probably the most uh, common complication for all these. And is there some kind of standard post-operative care that people use for to prevent this urologic dysfunction or stenosis? So not much for the urologic, but the, for vaginal stenosis, we put them on, we place them on a, a dilation protocol. So anytime they have either type of reconstruction, they get they do dilators for life, basically, and then they have a do a self cleansing protocol with uh, and, uh, with um, douches and cleanses, basically, to keep everything clean. Thanks. Our next topic is going to be the female to male surgery. Um, This includes both chest and genital reconstruction. So in female to male, the chest surgery um, can include a subcutaneous mastectomy in patients that desire a male chest contour. Um, Goals of this surgery is to have a more male chest contour, an acceptable position of the nipple areolar complex, and minimal scars. This population is often more difficult than the male gynecomastia population because of larger breast size and excess skin. Breast size and skin elasticity are the most important factors when planning these your surgical incisions, which Dr. Rizak will be able to talk a little bit about. Um, for patients with smaller breasts or grade one ptosis, liposuction alone may be performed um, only, or a semicircular transarial or incision approach can be used. Once you get larger, if you have medium-sized breasts or greater ptosis, such as grade two, a concentric circular or extended concentric incision can yield good results. And then for a large or grade three ptosis, a free nipple graft is the best available option uh, for these patients. Nipple necrosis and hematoma are the most common complications of um, female to male chest surgery. And then um, post-chest reconstruction surgery, female to male patients should continue cisgender women screening guidelines for breast cancer if no mastectomy or only a breast reduction has been performed. 
So, yes, I mean, that's a great review of kind of what we can do to transition for female to male chest surgery. I think the first and foremost, you have to, again, discuss that with your patient. Some patients coming in as who are identified as non-binary may not want nipples. And so that may not be an important part of their reconstruction. Some uh, patients prefer to have only they want that nipple sensation. And so that may guide you on to deciding which is better for you for reconstruction. Uh, and so you may end up with a buttonhole uh, just to try to preserve nipple sensation. And even though they may not get that completely flat chest that they're looking for, they would rather have that uh, over overall cosmesis, over than cosmesis results. So um, it depends on what size they are, how big they are, what they want to do for uh, for reconstruction. Um, for smaller breasted, say A cup, uh, a periareolar uh, with liposuction is usually a great approach. Uh, if they have like a more hanging breast, uh, you know, that's when we're starting to look for a peri, a circumareolar, um, almost like a Benelli try to approach, basically to try to shrink it down. And if they really have a lot of ptosis going on, then really a double incision. Basically, it's almost a breast amputation with a free nipple graft is what we're performing. Uh, the goals is basically to hide the scar into the peri and the pectoral. Um, border to minimize what it, that appearance of a female breast where it has a big curve underneath the IMF. Also, and to make the nipple smaller. And so you want that areola smaller and a little offset to the side. The female areola and breast is in the meridian. The male areola is just slightly lateral to that meridian and a little inferior. And those goals overall, we can kind of achieve a, a really good um, male pattern chest. I know in male gynecomastia, mm-hmm. we'll typically interrupt that inframammary fold. Is mm-hmm. that some of the same things that we do for female to male chest surgery? Correct. That's one of them. Uh, that's another important key factor when you're doing that because it's so scarred down that it can have that permanent crease. And so one thing we do is obliterate that by defatting all that area and taking all the adipose tissue out uh, below the fold, and so it will flatten down. And also, almost doing like a radial scoring, like you're doing for your capsulectomies mm-hmm. and capsulotomies, uh, and that will really allow that to flatten down. Um, another important po- point is to make sure that they know that this is not a cancer operation. Men do have breast tissue. Uh, and to get that best cosmesis, instead of hollowing them out like we do for traditional mastectomies, um, it, you know, we I will leave, I leave a little soft tissue behind. And so I do always recommend that they do their self-breast exams. Um, and again, if the patient is a BRCA patient, that we do see some of those patients who are genetic positive, you do need to go over this. And you may want to involve a breast surgeon uh, in that care as well. Uh, even though I am, you know, capable of doing a mastectomy, let's say, a complete nipple sparing mastectomy is the same type of approach, but it's going to be a little bit different. In terms of sending your specimens off to pathology like mm-hmm. we do for reduction patients, do you still do that and do you mark the um I do. Yeah. So, um, and most of my patients that if I'm not piecemealing it, say if not liposuction, uh, anytime I take out a big chunk of uh, breast tissue, basically, as I'm doing a traditional mastectomy, I always mark a superior lateral, uh, you know, so they can Mm -hmm. identify. As far as complications that you see in these patients, what are kind of the more common ones that you see? Um, Particularly since we're operating through tiny incisions, we're trying to, you know, minimize the scarring. We see some hematomas uh, and as well as in nipple uh, necrosis and uh, hypopigmentation, especially if we're doing the free nipple grafts. Those are, tend to be the most common ones. And then you get some contour irregularities because if you're trying to do the mastectomy through a small incision, you can potentially get some contour chest irregularities that may require some uh, skin excision or fat grafting later. 
As far as when we talk about patient satisfaction with these kinds of procedures, mm-hmm. what is your experience? Um, overall, I think there's the uh, highest patient satisfaction for most of the uh, surgeries that I do, uh, almost to the point where I've actually had some patients come off of their psych medications uh, because of that. And so I think it's more of a gratifying thing in that aspect, but it's, it's uh, very functional. Thank you, Dr. Izak. So in terms of genital reconstruction for female to male, patients. The goals are to create an ideal neophallus that is aesthetically pleasing, has intact tactile and erogenous sensation, and provides staining, urination, and imparts minimal dotorcite morbidity. So there are three surgical techniques um, in female-to-male genital reconstruction that we can look into. So metoidoplasty, a pedicle phalloplasty with an ALT flap, and a phalloplasty with a radial forearm free flap. So for all of these reconstructive options, urologic dysfunction, including strictures and fistula, are the most common complications like we saw in the male-to-female patients. Um, metoidoplasty involves the creation of a neophallus from a hypertrophied clitoris. The clitoris is dissected with detachment of the ligament and division of the urethral plate with urethroplasty to increase the neophallus length. The advantage of this approach is the principle of like-with-like reconstruction, so it utilizes the glands and allows for erectile rigidity without a prosthesis. Um, The drawback of metoidoplasty is a shorter neophallus around 5 to 7 centimeters. The next technique we can talk about is the pedicled ALT, and this can be used for a tube-within-a-tube flap design for neourethral formation. This flap provides a reliable vascular supply with a discrete donor site. The difficulties for this option um, include a thick subcutaneous layer, and that limits the tube formation and the need for a prosthesis. That limits the tube formation. There's also the difficulty of the need for prosthesis for erectile rigidity. And finally, the radial form free free flap creates an aesthetic neophallus with adequate length for staining urination. Innervation for the radial forearm free flap is performed between donor antibrachial cutaneous nerves with the dorsal, clitoral, and or ilioinguinal nerves, and this provides tactile anorogenous sensation. Disadvantages of the radial forearm free flap include donor site morbidity. Most patients will undergo a total hysterectomy and bilateral salpingectomy and oophorectomy prior to phalloplasty, but you'll need to continue to follow screening for cervical cancer after genital reconstruction. So it sounds like there's a lot of techniques for um, female to male genital reconstruction. Um, I know you've given some great talks about the differences and what you prefer. Can you kind of talk to us about the difference in these as far as technique, outcome, um, and patient complaints or, you know, what patients end up preferring? Yeah. So actually, believe it or not, the metodoplasty is uh, um, one of the more preferred me- uh, methods for per patient, um, which I find surprising. But I guess if you're what you're really doing is just trying to, again, go back and ask the patient what's important to them. Uh, and patients will come reading all these things online and knowing most of the complications and they've seen them. Uh, and so uh, unfortunately, these surgeries have such a high complication rate and the majority of them mm-hmm. are from the urethral anastomosis and urethral strictures. So um, if they just want to feel more of a masculine appearing, then metoidoplasty is a nice procedure. Uh, if they want to try just to stand uh, urinating while standing, and that may be something that they, we can do with the metoidoplasty. Uh, if they're looking for penetration, the ALT or their radial form are the, are the way to go. Um, the uh, osteocutaneous fibula is, the, you know, that mm-hmm. they've, we've 
done those again very more a little bit more difficult to conceal you would think the bone would erode through them they really don't it's more of the uh, prosthetic devices that tend to erode uh, hmm. through the uh, um, the soft tissue uh, but none of them have such a great result yet and that's unfortunate that we just can't um, I can't recreate a penis very well. So uh, I think the uh, radial form is probably, you know, first and foremost the the go-to right now and then the ALT as a second, Uh, partly uh, because of the we can get a better shape and sensation with that radial form than we can with the ALT. So we have, when we're talking a little bit about advantages and disadvantages, I know Dr. Rezac touched on this, but going from, I guess, smallest to largest, we have, you know, the metoidoplasty, which is just creating the neophallus from the hypertrophied clitoris. So the length is going to be smaller than your pedicled ALT or radial free, free, the radial forearm free flap. For standing urination, the the metoidoplasty will be difficult. Um, You can achieve more of a standing urination with the pedicled ALT or radial forearm. Um, Sensation so sensation is great for the metoidoplasty and the radial forearm if you're able to do the neurography between the uh, anabrachial cutaneous nerves and the dorsal uh, clitoral nerves. Um, however, if you had to do the pedicled ALT, there really is no option for um, anastomosing any kind of cutaneous nerves for sensation. And Just one thing, though, you know, the lateral femoral cutaneous can be used in those cases, but it's still not great. Okay. Uh, just just, just if, if it comes up, yeah. It provides poor sensation, Correct. but it can be It's tried. not great sensation, but it can be used. And then for donor morbidity, um, the radial forearm has the most donor morbidity. I've seen some patients wear sleeves after surgery. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a big problem. Even in uh, general reconstruction patients, we talk about the donor site for that. Um, so I guess overall, like Dr. Rezac said, creating a penis is difficult. Yeah. That's why men are special. Yes, they <laughs> <Just> are. <kidding>. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had a question about kind of the centralization of care of these kind of procedures. Yes. I know that chest reconstruction and chest gender affirming surgery is offered at a variety of places. Um, it's a little bit harder to come by a facility that can take care of these complex patients who need genital mm-hmm. reconstruction or general affirming surgery. Yeah, that's um, a what do you find? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point, and um, I feel that I feel that most uh, places will have a uh, center in order for this uh, to take care of all the patients because one, you really do need a multidisciplinary team, um, and that's what we're working on here as well. And so uh, you really do need to have medicine, endocrine, you know, peds. Uh, you have to have plastics, GYN, urology, social work. PT, you know, physical therapy is a huge component of a lot of these surgeries because of uh, function in order to get that to work. So there's a lot more involved in having a big team really, really does come down to a center. And so that's why the major academic centers are able to provide more of the genital reconstruction and so the t- rather than doing the chest surgery. Um, uh, but overall, yes, I think, I think they would be better off at, at a center. Mm-hmm. Do you think that more places around the nation are coming towards that, or in a way? I do, and I think um, you know. What, I think it comes down to training. So I think as more surgeons are, or medical professionals are being trained mm-hmm. uh, in taking care of transgender patients, uh, it's going to be more of a standard of care than anything. And most institutions will be able to do that. But ultimately, it's slowly progressing. But it's coming with more training. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Rizak. I really appreciate uh, you coming here today and. Um, taking time out of your busy schedule to help teach us. Um, I think you kind of wrapped it up nicely. It's an evolving field. We need multiple people involved. It's a team effort. Um, 
And I think that studies have shown that these patients really benefit from these types of procedures, and the rate of regret is really low. Um, I think some studies state 2%. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think as this field continues to grow, we'll, be, we'll have more trained surgeons in this specialty. So I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Oh, great. Thank you for inviting me. Um, for information for uh, uh, learning terminology, uh, the WPATH as well as the Fenway Institute are the two websites that you want to go to to review those.